Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Alternative London podcast with me, Gary Means. In this episode, I meet Iranian British artist and printer Ida Wilde, who hosted me at our studio in Hackney Wick. Ida has established herself as one of London's most respected screen printers, alongside being a talented artist in her own right. She uses humour and satire to tackle issues such as gentrification and social inequality. Ida has been in the East End for many years now and seen Hackney Wick go through a stream of constant change and has documented part of that process in our art. We talk about all of that and so much more and I've got so much respect for Ida. She is an artist in the truest sense of the word and a real one in a million human being. I'm really grateful to her as well for her candour and openness during this chat. So here it is, the Alternative London podcast with Ida Wilde. Oh, that's real good. So, here we go. So, I'm here in Ida Wild's studio, which is amazing. I've never been in here before, and it's an absolutely um, fascinating space. And once again, um, surrounded by some really amazing artworks. How did you get into screen printing? I kind of, I tried a little bit in my A-levels, like a school, and they've, we didn't have much facilities and then I went and done my foundation in Barnet College, which was a great art and design foundation. It had its own building next to the college, it was in a church. And it was the first time I felt so free to do anything I wanted to and the college had the facilities. And as with all good techs, the tech was an asshole who kind of just showed us something really quickly how to make a screen, and that was it. Wow. I, I could tell you this, Gary, I went from one crappy crit to uh, two weeks later that my, my work j- just completely turned around. And my teachers were like, oh, my God, I think you found your thing. And I was like, yep. Amazing. Mm. Certainly did. It was so instinctive, like I'd been doing it forever. It was wow. very, very strange. Yeah. I mean, you've definitely got... Um, you can see with your work, you've got a, a talent with it. You don't often see that, I don't think, with, like, screen printing. It's just, like, what someone gets someone to do to sell, like, their work, isn't it? But with you, you can see that there's a there's a craft to it and you give I, a shit about, like, yeah. the outcome. I think... Not that people don't give a shit about the outcome, but, but you, you're invested in the, in the art of it, I think, aren't you? I think there's a really major difference between, um, like you said, like a jobbing studio that gets working just for reproduction. And there's someone like me who, I, as much as like my work gets developed on a computer, a lot of the times I pull that out, I pull the layers, I, you know, because how I generate artwork is analogue first, by hand, or photographs I take, then is scanned and whatever, then it's turned digital, then it's turned analogue again. And when I'm printing, often um, it's like painting. Like only people that have kind of, like Lucas knows because he's seen me do it that way. It's like I change up layers, I change up inks. I, you know, I build the layers up a lot like a painting would do. Like that that one behind you, actually, the, the bird. That took a lot, you know, with the, with the feathers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Takes You know, you can't, people always say to me, oh, do a mock-up your colorways on the computer but it's really not that easy no because um what we're we're looking at here with the bird it's not like a screen print print where you have layers of um color it's sort of colors blended blended, together like a paint yeah yes some are opaque some are transparent you know it takes takes a while but i'm really lucky because i studied surface design Mm -hmm. in the london college of printing which is now london college of communication but back in the day um, we had a whole floor of every printing discipline you could think of. So I went from printing um, textiles to glass to metal to ceramics. We got taught everything meticulously. And I think it's that kind of blend that I, I sometimes bring my textile knowledge into the paper or vice versa. And I think that really makes a difference. You, uh, you know, 
I don't think print education is the same as it was. Because I obviously I taught for about 14 years there. Did you? Yeah. I didn't realise that. I don't, I don't, yeah. So it's not the same since you left. No, no, it's it's not about that. I think uh, a lot of the old tutors, um, there was a big shake-up. A lot of people were laid off. Um, You know, as it is, a lot of the good techs that obviously worked in industry, that had that insider knowledge, got let go of, and then it just became really diluted. And Mm. we were the last slot. They They closed our course. They closed... Surface design, which I studied as well, after 22 years, it was running, just because of resources. That's sad, isn't it? It was really sad. It's always the um, the creative subjects that are like the first to go, isn't it? I think everyone thinks, um, let's replace everything analogue um, that you can do by hand, but with by machines, by technology. But, you know, having taught a BA or an FDA and, and doing evening classes and things like that. I always, and I did evening classes for like 14 years. You always had people that were doing computers or graphic design wanting to come back to use their hands. So I think even now, like you, you could see the surgeons with like NFTs and stuff like that. Everyone's going, oh, it's the future. It's the future. But, you know, I kind of think people always love making hands. It's, you know... DNA, I do as well. I think. I think so, for sure. It always comes back. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's um, there's just something human about it, isn't there? Something that people want to do, analog things, like you say. It's I just. Think a, we cr- I think we crave it. I think so, especially Making. the more and more that we spend time on screens. I think the more we actually crave doing activities mm. that bring us back to kind of who we actually are isn't it i think also so. touch like touch like you know what we went through the pandemic like mm. not being able to be close to our loved ones and friends and wanting just to hug and hold hands you know it's just about touch and feel and now you can smell my studio because i've just been printing solvents and you know we can smell it yeah i know <laughs> Yeah, and actually sitting in a room together as well as uh, someone else that i got on the podcast we were saying um are we going to do it online? And I was like, no, like we've spent the last couple of years online. Yeah. Let's like, I want to do this to meet up with people in person. And um, at first we were doing it in a studio, but it's been really nice these last few to actually come into other people's space as well oh. and just kind of experience. I think you get a different, um, I think you get a different experience when you're in someone else's environment. Yeah. I think. I think it felt really good for you to come around actually. Just to just see my be, you know, yeah, to be in my space, and to get a feel of, you know, my life. I'm going to get this stat totally wrong because I don't know like the actual number of it, but they they say something along the lines of, you can tell more about a person by spending something like three minutes in their home than you can by spending three hours in their company or something like that. I think that's always been true for me. I think now, so. Three minutes with me. <laughs> First well, three minutes. Well, it's been like ten, so I've got about ten years of knowledge on you. I, don't, I know you a bit, but I don't know. Um, I don't know you really, really well. Um, what I do know is that you came to the UK from Iran. Yeah. And in the mid eighties, yeah. Did you? That was dur- that must have been during the Iraq Iran war then. Yeah. So that was what your family were fleeing, moving away from. It's a bit more com- complex because I think the trouble started really in my childhood with my father, and what he he used to, he used to work in the government and stuff. And when the revolution happened, I think it just snowballed. I think you know he was killed by them, and then. It was always turbulent. We were growing up in the midst of the, you know, we were ch- my sister was just being born and I've got an, an older sibling, I'm in the middle and um, it's, it was just ongoing. So you, you could imagine my mum going through that. Then a few years later, the war starting and, you, you know, it was an eight-year war. I mean, we're in two months of war now with Russia, not not even two months, actually. Imagine eight years. 
it was just on. It was ne- nothing was in sight, and I think it was my mum's foresight. Yeah, let's leave. Kind of in a weird, convoluted way of, oh, we're going on holiday. You know, we've got a family member in England, just going for a quick visit, but then somehow the visas got sorted, and we went. Yeah, it was just. Then we seeked asylum here. Right. Um, which was a really long process. Like how, old were, how old were you at that point? I was about ten. So you know, I so old enough to old know. enough to remember everything. My older sister's kind of wounded in a different way. She's a poet and st- and st- she's a really well known Iranian poet actually. But um, my younger sister's gone away a little bit easier because she was she was a bit younger. Mm-hmm. But you know, when that age, remembering everything. Um, I'm sure that every person that's lived through a war will just tell you it's it's the sound, it's the noise that you always remember. Um, I've spoken to a few other people that have gone through different wars, and that they're, they're all the same. There's there's a weird sound when when a bomb drops, and then there's there's a weird um, it's like a um, like a, a long siren, like 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 a long buzzing noise, beeping noise. What, like in your ear, eardrum? Ear, yeah, because it's something happened. I know, it's really... Yeah. Things like that and blackouts. I just keep remember blackouts. Mm. You know, putting tape on your windows. Those are, th- you know, you come to... When I came to this country, it was just like paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone yeah, just running around free, you know? Yeah. Plus that must have been like, yeah... How, how was that to come but here? A, but as a girl as well, like by the time at my age, I had to wear a chador and cover up and things like that. And I came here and everyone was just like, you know, hair free flowing on their bikes. I'd never ridden a bike. I was like, oh my God, you need to teach me how to ride a bike, which I still can't do very well. <laughs> well, massive culture shock. Because we, we went to the north of England. In, we lived in Sunderland for a bit. I learned English in a really Geordie accent. I didn't realise that. <laughs> Most of my family are in the northeast. But... I had the poshest Geordie accent <laughs> you could think of. And then we moved to London when I was about 14. And, um, yeah, <laughs> and I got this weird South African thing going on. How did you find kind of settling here? Because I think, um, yeah, I was only a small child throughout the 80s so I don't really know I I kind of I suppose my main point of reference for um first being aware I suppose of of refugees asylum people moving here from somewhere else um only happened in my kind of late teens when I moved to London really I think and around that point it was um a lot of I suppose it's always been that way in the UK but the far right talking about mm-hmm. immigration in a very yeah. bad way but how how was it in the in the 80s when you first moved here? Well, how, it, how easy was it to settle because you seem like in Sunderland it was um I mean I've touched on this very slightly but it's almost like I always say it in a way oh because I'm quite, I'm a very light Iranian. I managed to get away with it, but like my sister, who was who's slightly darker, darker eyes, dark, really dark hair, she she got bullied quite a bit in Sunderland because there was hardly. I think we had. Imagine I went to a really big school. I'm talking about about a thousand people. I think in my school there was a couple of black guys um, and maybe a few people from Bangladesh, but that was it. That, um, that, that is it. No lie. Like, any area. And I think that's why me, my yeah. mum moved us. And there was a really massive football culture. And, like, people don't remember, like, in the 80s, um, football hooliganism was huge. And like you said, there was the National Front. Um, you always recognised them with sort of their sh- shaved heads and those, you know, those bomber jackets... I don't know if you if you've ever yeah. seen you know the brown ones mm-hmm. with the no they were black and green with red, orange and so you know you recognise it and you, that's when you just you know you kind of avoided that 
and that's why we came to London. And when we came to London, we went. Um, I went to Hendon School. Um, we lived in Northwest London, and um, oh, that was just beautiful. It, I melting pot. If like I can't like I was just like I was no you know because because in London I was the refugee kid mm -hmm. that everyone felt sorry for and looked after, which was really nice. Mm -hmm. And like, when I came here, like, I was no one. It was great. I was just like, every, because, you know, I was hanging around with every culture you could think of. And Hendon School was like that. I don't know if you, if you know Hendon School, but um, it still is, actually. But, um, yeah, it was great. Good. But that's when I think National Front was kind of just... It was dying down a little. It was quite low key, and then they nipped the whole hooliganism thing, and that kind of died down. But it was huge in the eighties, in the mid eighties. Yeah, I do remember that because I started going to football around that age as well, and was sort of brought up in that culture. What team? Remember. Newcastle United. That's oh where my family gosh! From. So I think I went to my first match when I was about seven, and it was when they had all the fences up around the. Uh, around the pitch pre-Hillsborough and I was with my older brother and cousin and like some like dads and uncles and that and they the men like passed us down to the front yeah. so that we could see the game through the bars and I didn't know where like the grown-ups were and I was oh just with my, my cousins God. and it was exhilarating it was thrilling to watch but it was quite it was quite scary like and it was quite a yeah, kind of a wild experience. It wasn't like it is now where everyone gets their seat and exactly. it's all very organised. And coming mm. out of the ground, it was quite kind of mayhem, you know. Things would kick off at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Does that trigger you around here now with, like, all the West Ham fans and yeah. stuff coming around here now? It actually does. Yeah. I can't, and, you know, I can't stand football. And this is nothing against West Ham, No, it's nothing. Se. They won last weekend or something. <laughs> it's just that for them. since you've been in Hackney Wick, the... The Olympic Stadium was kind of um, quite controversially actually granted to West Ham mm -hmm. Football Club. And all of a sudden, this creative hub of Hackney Wick, that was very much a kind of alternative neighbourhood, um, became like a, a place for the West Ham fans to drink yeah. pre-game, like overnight, didn't it? Yeah. And that's something that, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a jarring effect, I think, isn't it? To have you something know like that. that um I never got over the, the, the deal they got. I think it was like £800,000 a year. And I think if you still Google it, it's only gone up a tiny bit. Um, the rest is subsidised. Um, it's yes. nothing, £800,000. Nothing. I think what's really sad about what's happened with West Ham is that um, the exodus and the businesses that went under and the old pubs that had been there for years that have gone under yeah. because of of losing that trade mm -hmm. and relying on that trade, that's what's really sad. Yeah. I feel more sad about West Ham than I do when there's a game here, if if you know what I mean. Because I, yeah, I do. Yeah, it feels like it's um, yeah, it's kind of come to an area where there was already its own vibe and its own stuff going on and like I went past the old Berlin ground the other day oh. and um and you do feel like there is a there's a bit of a vacuum there yeah and yeah just I suppose it just wasn't cool enough for a modern day and billion pound football club was it I kind of I think that area was it was so long established a traditional way that it, it could cater for for that community mm -hmm. and I when you do see it here, I kind of think, what do they think when they come here? Like, there's not really a traditional boozy here. Like, the, everything's fairly diluted and quite, what do you call it, a bit hipstery. Do we use hipster still? I don't yeah. know. Yupster? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> it's a bit yupsterish, you know. Um, but what struck me, like... Um, they seem to be using the Lord Napier quite a lot now, which is, I guess, good for them. But I've heard, you know, that's coming with its own price. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, with its own own things. But There's not many really... pubs in the UK, though, I would say, that you can go there on a Friday night and you've got 
drag queens dancing on a table and you go there on a Sunday and you've got like a thousand football yeah. fans crowded around the bar. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty mad, isn't it? But that's Hackney Wick. That's Hackney Wick, isn't anything it? Anything goes. Yeah. Right? We can be anything we want in Hackney Wick. Do you still love Hackney Wick? No. No. No, I don't. Do you know what, what's happened? Because it's identity has been stripped away obviously so many creative people have have gone so many studios have gone um there's a couple of establishments you know like the pearl or um the wick cafe and the premiere and things like that that have been here forever you know um and then i don't think it's found its identity fully so right now we're in this like no man's land where no one knows what the hell's going on one week we might have some an event in the color factory that attracts you know a a lot of young wow something broke badly upstairs it's really windy today it is so windy outside isn't it (laughs) it's really windy (laughs) anyway Sounded like a mirror anyway. Might um, cut that out, might leave it in. That's I think we like should that. leave it in. Leave that in, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly weird, it's people. Like anything can happen in <laughs> Wow, I hope It just sounded, it sounded like a plant pot to me. A lot of plants um, happened in, was it Eunice? Was it that? Yeah. What was that? It was a Eunice, yeah. The storm a few weeks ago, yeah. That was mental. Yeah, so that's, we're not in Eunice right now. But, um, So, yes, I think it's going to take another few years for it to establish what Hackney Wick's become since the studio's going and the new flat's going up. Um, So right now, it's just, it feels like there's nothing. No, it's like, because you were in Shoreditch and Brick Lane before, we'll get into that in a bit, but, and the the changes over there happened over time, they're still happening now, slowly. But in Hackney Wick, I think a few years ago, again, I don't know the numbers, but I think a few years ago, it had the highest concentration of artist studios yes, per square kilometre. It, it was th- it was like 30, 20, 30, it was ridiculous, like 20,000 or something. Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was a huge amount. It was a lot. And it seemed like it was almost overnight. Yeah. That just went. It was like a steamroller came through. And, you know, the, and, yeah. the, and the big co-living working warehouses were all demolished a lot yeah. of the art studios were demolished and um and a lot of apartments were just put in the place so you've got a, a huge amount of new people moving into the area and i think a lot of those people probably move in because it's a cool place to live but i don't know if um i mean i still think it's a cool place i think oh, it's, it's a great it's place really and it's still got cool. a vibe but um that wasn't what I asked you, was it? It was whether or not you, you still love it. And that's a different thing, isn't it? Um, I'm getting distracted by people. <laughs> I think there's something's broken outside. Sorry. Um, I think after the Olympics happened, there was a big lull for two years, right? That we thought that we were safe and nothing was going to happen. Then it was literally like overnight, the bulldo- like the bulldozers came. And it's been like living in a building site for the last nine, well, actually since the Olymp- before the Olympics, I'm talking about 13 years, mm. living in a giant construction site that the buildings are going up at a staggering rate. Like we're talking about nine months to build the flats by Sainsbury's I watched I filmed it from the start and I filmed it right at the end it was nine months during lockdown that's how fast these things so as fast as they knocked it down it's gone so you know going back to the point you made gentrification used to take in an area let's say 10 years sort of average and they're saying now like it's taking what three four years for an area just to like transform completely like Hackney Wick has we all have to evolve, things move on. I think the people that are moving in, I think there's two things I'm finding really interesting. One, they have no interest in interacting with us, like let's say the artists or the the people that have come before them. And obviously we made the area really cool. And two, 
I don't know where these people go at night because it's not around here because I can see it from going to various venues. It seems to be like people coming into here from like um, Essex or Croydon and things like that or West, you know, obviously with the games West Ham. So I'm just wondering, all these thousands and thousands of people aren't, I'm actually more concerned about its economy for, for us, within us, when before there was a really nice creative economy where we all ate here, we spent our money here, but all those people have gone. So now you find like you go around the corner and midweek, everything's empty, which That's is sad, isn't it? And you only seem to get this buzz happening just over the weekend, mm -hmm. which was like Shoreditch, yeah. if you remember. In the week, like I used to go um, to the wholesalers and stuff, like in the early 2000s around there, because there was a lot of factories doing T-shirts and stuff, and that's how I started out. That's where I used to buy my blank um, stock. Dead. It used to be dead. Like there was no one in Shoreditch High Street, no one in Brick Lane. So that you can see it here. So I think it's more and more becoming a weekend destination. And I think when the summer hits... Every, everyone, everyone local has a joke like we just prepared for the summer it's almost like running a gauntlet we call it jumping over people being sick on, on the um, what do you call it the curb or pissing outside it's and a mad, summer, um, it's summer a mad phenomenon week. isn't it like to because it's not even the gentrification it's like you talk about um, as well as the it's the displacement as well isn't it yeah and that's the you know, we can say about how, you know, things change and people move, but I think enforced displacement mm -hmm. in a country like this, in a city like London, is it's just criminal. It should not be happening. I've lived here a long time and I've been, you know, I, I worked in St. Martin's for a bit and obviously I was in LCC for, for a long while and you saw the trend of, um, you know, young people studying, um, you know, young hip kids like from Japan and Hong Kong coming over to study, you know, that whole vibe, fashion and art. Um, I don't know whether this has been so stripped back and I don't know whether we, we still hold that, um, what do you call it, the badge of being this still the very creative, cool, happening, fashion-forward um city anymore i think maybe we need to start realizing that why they're building these buildings why they're tearing down brick lane and things like that and getting getting rid of all the characteristics of what makes an area to become just about business mm -hmm. and to suit the suits yeah. i think you know like everything that's popping up especially around brick lane is like Italy and things like that you know they used to talk about whole foods didn't they what, what they used to call it whole paycheck foods type of thing so you telling me someone you know really hip young creative is going to be able to afford to live somewhere like this so I think gradually it's just stripping it back to become a business hub maybe and if all the creatives are gonna go to Margate to market, yeah, and Folkestone, yeah, but well, they are going Hastings. to other places, and and that that's a shame though. But I I don't think um, I I still don't think that that's necessary. I think just because it's happening, I think it's again, I think it's in, enforced the way that they're doing it, and I think that it's short sighted because I think it's something like eighty billion a year our creative industries are, are worth, mm -hmm. and that money doesn't just happen by magic no, it, doesn't. it doesn't happen yeah. um it happens in spite of the lack of investment and in spite of all the things that the government are doing to try to stop funding the creative industries but i think it's always had this idea that well just that the creative industries are, are funded that they're a charity that yeah. they're given money to survive yeah whereas if you look at our creative output there's no other country in the world with our population mm -hmm. that puts out what we put out. And I think that it's really short-sighted that we're not investing in that. And, you know, from my point of view as well, the creative scene and the, and the tourism, cultural tourism, these things, they do tie into each other as well. 
Yeah. And once a city stops becoming creative and interesting, it stops becoming a destination to a certain extent as well for a lot of people. I was thinking about that yesterday, um, actually. Yeah, and, you know, there's only um, so much that you can underfund things before people just either move out or, or give up or something else. So I think it's, it's happening, it's definitely happening, but whether or not, I don't think it's right that it's happening. I will always say that the creative industries should be funded as well as the financial industries yeah. or even more so because they're the industries that are short-sighted. They're the industries that aren't actually based on anything. And when all of those um, jobs are taken over by mm. robots... Yeah, like we're heading. Like we're heading very yeah. quickly. Um, the thing that's going to be the most valuable is creative people and creative brains and people that can actually come up with ideas do you, do you know why we undervalued because i don't think there's a system this implemented in measuring our contribution monetary wise right so when you think some just me as an individual as an artist i have a couple of freelancers that work for me so um i regularly pay wages so also through the sales of my work through galleries I probably fund one person's whole wage for a year. So, you know, when you think how much we contribute, and that's just financially with me. Imagine more like me having a rant about things, then I contribute that way as well. So that's just one person. That's one okay. creative person. So imagine how much more other creatives do. I think there should be a way that... Um, someone has to come and measure <laughs> our contribution put it in a graph put it in a monetary wise and maybe that's when they'll realize how much um how much joy and money actually we generate yeah i mean money we're talking the language of money because that's the only thing that like that the un- people yeah, in charge exactly. like value things exactly. on but but you can't actually put a value on um a kid hearing their favorite song for the first time yeah or um an artist selling out their first stadium gig mm-hmm. or or you selling out a show or yeah. selling a piece of artwork yeah, exactly. that you've put your heart and soul into there's no or someone hanging something on their wall that they think is absolutely beautiful and there's you can't put a value on those things that's why they can't measure us and our value that's yeah. exactly why but i think the pandemic did show that um yeah, it did, didn't it? that when we strip away our work and when we when everything else is taken away, what do we actually care about? Yeah. We care about human connection. We care about, God, if I've actually got time and I don't have to work 50 hours a week, I'm going to do some painting with my kid. Exactly. You know, everyone was saying that they were doing creative yeah. things. Everyone was saying that they were getting into nature. Yeah. And I think that those are things that we really need to remember going forward because um, I think those are the, the, the valuable things, aren't they? And and it and going back to Hackney Wick, uh, it seems like that this is a microcosm of that. It feels like this is a culture versus commerce mm. on the kind of front front line of it, the sharp edge of it. I've started because um, the point I think that I lost thread last time was um, with with our new residents is how much more longer are they going to tolerate the the bit of the crazy local parties and and the art and things like that and I'm just wondering because it will come when they're going to start washing all the graffiti mm-hmm. off the walls because it's I I don't know whether it'll be in a year but I think it's very very soon where they're going to start whitewashing the walls and everything else and then on the other hand you've got Tower Hamlet starting to fund murals for the first murals, time as well which I did you read that article so cl- that I... I didn't, I but, I had, but I had Ali on the podcast. Oh. So, I'll listen. you listen to the podcast and I'll read the article and I'll put a little link to both on the, on this podcast mm. so people can have a little look at both. But Art it's... Um, yeah, I th- it, it's funny, isn't it? Because it, it's still the case where, yeah, they might be funding murals now and that's great in one respect, but they are still cleaning off graffiti and they're still prosecuting um, predominantly young men, but people and putting them in in prison for long sentences for painting on a wall. So that's a 
a you know, strange I always gray think area, about, isn't it? I always think about Banksy's um, arrest. Like, I have this, like, fantasy. <laughs> I run these scenarios in my head that if Banksy ever got arrested, that would be the precedent that will be set. <laughs> that what the outcome of um, prosecution... Do, do you know what I mean? Like, whether yeah. they'll, they'll be sort of lenient, um, vandalism, or... Well, we kind of found out a few years ago, didn't we? Because because uh, Tox um, got got prosecuted and, and sent to prison. And when Banksy did a Tox tag in solidarity, they protected it. Um, so you're right. Um, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> so yeah. it, crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. And the, and I think the craziest thing about that is that most people would probably support that. They would go, "Well, that's Banksy. It's fine." But he, that other guy's just painting graffiti. Yeah even though it was exactly the same tag that they both did. I think the common, I think the common idea for most people is that Banksy is an entity to himself and anyone else that paints graph should be put in prison. Of course they should, they're vandals. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the kind of scene, I think a lot of people seem to think like that. A lot of people um, I meet anyway. There was a girl a few weeks ago, I, I, I never talked to anyone that comes and paints here and, you know, Back in the day, obviously, you couldn't do it in the day. And now it's commonplace. You come and paint in Hackney Wick or Brick Lane in the day. Your bag of, you know, Sainsbury's for life bag. Loads of your paints rattling in it. And I just stopped, you know, just curious. I was just like, oh, what are you doing here today? Da, da, da. And um, she's like, oh, it's really great coming to the East End, coming to Hackney Wick. Um, there's so many legal spots. <laughs> and I was like... No, it's, like, it's still these are still illegal walls. Yeah, they but just become legal just, by default, don't yeah. they? Because there's so much paint already on them. But like you say, as soon as that starts to go, then the then the prosecutions either it will go two ways. One, the the well, the prosecutions for taking those spaces back with illegal uh, letter style graffiti will um, will rise, but the sort of commissions of um, nice artworks on those walls will also rise, I think, as well. And I think it will go in two directions then. That's my personal take on it, that they'll get cleaned up, but they'll get cleaned up in a way that there'll be nice murals. You mean nice by safe? Safe. Beige. Safe. I don't know. Pre-proofed. Loads of pre-proofed um, images. Maybe, and yeah. briefs. Yeah. Like happens with a lot of the kind of building sites around um, around Shoreditch. I think when that first started to happen, people were writing things on the hoardings, um, voicing their discontent. Yeah. So the um, so the developers started to pay people to do artworks on there that looked like they were in the same vein, but didn't have anything offensive written on them. Mm. Um, so I think that might that might start to happen. But anyway, we haven't talked about your work yet. We haven't talked about what you do and sort of where it comes from because you're um, you're putting out some really, really good stuff at the minute. And not that you don't always, but like you seem to be riding a wave at the minute of of like really good works and really well received works as well. Thanks. And you seem to like um, connect with people with your artwork. Yeah, I think. Um that connection is really important. And, you know, um, what's been interesting, um, to, I remember Alex, who um, owns the Pearl, um, hadn't met me and he was just coming into the area, like I think maybe 2016 or 15 or something. And um, he'd already seen my work from Shoreditch. So, and then Chef Tom Brown, who owns Cornerstone, um, he was the same. Like he didn't know me, but he'd seen my work, and um, it's quite fascinating that what I make, all sorts of people connect to it, and especially like them coming to, to Hackney Wick. I think they felt a little bit more like they belonged just because they knew me from here and they knew my work. They didn't know me actually, but th- then I got to know them a little bit afterwards. Um, but what I love about my street work, especially, which started out when I had my business in Brick Lane in the mid 2000s, going, you know, before I came here, was um, I realised that the only way for me to make street art that connected was to make it for people. 
Um, that's why a lot of my street art isn't signed or anything like that. Um, I think I've talked about this quite a lot. I think what street artists do is like they give a gift. You know, when you go and paint on the street for free for everyone to either enjoy or not like or comment, it's still a gift. Um, and I think I just wanted my, I wanted this gift to to try and um, appease or or, or so many people to understand. That's why what I do is not very difficult. I don't overcomplicate things. If I have something to say, I keep it very short and sweet. Not sweet. Uh, not <laughs> Daddy, sweet I want a fucking pony. To, but I make it to but the point. But it's funny. It's, it's to the point and it's funny, isn't it? It's about gentrification, isn't exactly. it? I, it that, that whole range was, Daddy, I, think, I want a I rat think, dog, you know? Yeah. And now, I think if you went out on a wall and you wrote, fuck gentrification, no one's going to give no a shit one, about it's, that. It's but aggressive. when you make a joke about it and you make fun of it and you bring a bit of humour in, that I think that's what brings people yeah. on board with it. It's I a think, thought. Personally. It's a thought. It's a sensitivity. I never think, um, you know, if I'm making protest work, you can't tell people what to think and what to yep. say, you know. You, you make a piece of work and you make them think about it and come up to their with their own conclusion and I think I'm kind of getting really good at that now like I put a little seed there make up your own mind um kind yeah of I think I think you do it brilliantly oh thank you I think it's a skill you know there was a really massive surgence of sort of um slogan based artworks coming out in the last few years and people think it's just like comes out of thin air no it doesn't like, if I'm making something out of five lines, that line is edited so many times. So many words are replaced by other words just for it to make sense. It's it's kind of hard. But um, I love doing that, especially I'm dyslexic. Yeah. And like, you know, English is in my first language. I don't even know how I got into it. <laughs> that I can actually come up with, with words that actually make sense or um, resonate. Um, do you think so it's because the subject that. matter underlying it all just kind of means so much to you that you want yeah, to say something probably, about it? Probably. If my heart's not into something, you could... And I always steer away from things that my heart's not into or my gut isn't into. I, I can't make what... Um, that's why sometimes, you know, I'm so forgiving with myself. If nothing's coming to me... I've, I haven't made anything text-based for months... But it's fine. It'll come when it needs to. Mm. So now I'm just concentrating on my fine art stuff in the studio, which I'm really, really enjoying because I'm, you know, I've got this thing now that um, I want to try and bring out a new edition every two or three months, which before, la oh, last year was terrible. I think I only bought out like three editions the whole of the year. But this year I, I just want to be in the studio um, making new work indoor work I think else I've got this um there's so much I could say right now with with everything that's going on in the world but I think I went quite hard in 2020 you know I think 2020 when everyone was locked in I had my most productive year I think I made a lot of really good words I made big body of work for, for the disconnect show that I can I, you know it still resonates. I can still use. It's still got mileage. Um, so, you know, I'm really happy with that. And I think I can park that there because I think the work that I made in terms of commentary on the pandemic for me was like one of the best things I've ever made. And I'm really happy about that. Right now, I don't want to say anything about anything that's going on. Sometimes it's nice to sit still, absorb it. It's the same with, I didn't do too much for Women's Month this uh, this year either because I don't know where we, we are. I don't know how much, I haven't assessed how much impact the pandemic's had on equality and women's rights. By the looks of it, we've kind of regressed, especially with what's going on with the war and what's going on with, with the Taliban and the girls in Afghanistan. Um. I don't know. I think we've kind of regressed. So I'm just sitting still with my yeah. commentary work just to see where we're at. 
Yeah, there's so much going on in the world at the minute as well. Does it feel quite heavy for you and bring yeah. bring back things that that maybe you um, in some ways thought that were behind you, that were sort of things of the past that should be sort of consigned to to memory or history? I, th- You know what, Gary? I think, listen, war's been going on. You know, we've got climate change, we've got war, we've got atrocities. Um, they've been going on, they've been ongoing, especially like in the Middle East, in Africa, um, even like places like Mexico and things mm-hmm. like that. But I think the media attention in the last year or since the pandemic, let's say, when everyone has got more time to concentrate on things and read more mm-hmm. and pay attention more. Um, I think what's happening right now, so much of it is controlled by the media. You know, I I think people are not going to like what I say, but I don't, I don't care really. <laughs> but but you know, but I think if if so much emphasis was put on if if the war in Syria was on TV from morning till night, how much more aware would we be? Or things like in in the Yemen, um, you know, all all these things. If we saw that every day, I think our reactions would be the same as what we're going through right now. I had this exact conversation with someone the other day. You know, then you realise how much the media controls us. And also I kind of, it's really highlighted the, um, the imbalance and the inequality. If I'm honest, yes. It's really affected me that I haven't seen any, I haven't read or seen anything. What's going on currently? I just I can't. Yeah, and I, and I think um, when it first happened, I did a very, I shared a campaign, a choose love campaign to raise money on my stories, and I said, um, I'm out, I'm out of this one, um, I can't do it. That's really admirable in a lot in a lot of ways as well, though, because I think a lot of people these days want to. Um, fight every cause and sort of be um, behind everything. Behind yeah. every single issue, and I think y- you can't do that. You can't. Y- you... It's unsustainable. Yeah. Let's pray that this doesn't go on for any longer. But you know, are you going to have the same steam in eight months' time? Are you still going to be doing the fundraisers, the prints, the auctions? Da, da, da. You know, you've got to really, really pace yourself and. I don't know, be be steady, like be consistent. That's the word. Yeah. Be cons- consistent with your support. And I'm always, I try and be consistent. I've got a list of things that I do every year that I support, you know, whether it's Women's Aid, whether it's Choose Love, whether it's Terence Higgins. You know, I stick to my, you know, and I'll, sometimes I deviate and give money there and here and everywhere. But, you know, you've got to kind of be I think that's what charity relies on consistency, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you just got, you just sold a print at auction for quite mm-hmm. a lot as well, didn't you? What was yes. that for? That was for Terence Higgins. Was it? I love working with Terence Higgins. You know what's, I don't know if you, what was it? You how much did it go for on the Amazon? Five, five Amazing. grand. Congratulations. Thank you. It was amazing. phenomenal for a massive aubergine. And <laughs> Tom Best, who was the auctioneer, was just joking, going, you know, we've sold a Degas <laughs> absinthe drinker in the same roof and now we've sold a giant sparkly aubergine. It was, it was the joke of the night. It really lit the room up. I was, just, I was so nervous. But, um, you know, with Terence Higgins, they used to do a really... And in uh, in early 2000s, um, when Spittles Food was great, Spittles Food Market, so Terence Higgins used to do this um, alternative fashion week and, you know, that was the first project that I ever did. And it was with my best mate, Ego, and our other friend, Bobby. We, we They accepted us. It was a fundraiser. So I just finished college then. And um, I think that's where my kind of tie, you know, I've always been tied to, the, like, imagines from 2000. And we did this beautiful fashion show for them. And they gave us the opportunity to make clothes and we showed it on a runway and stuff so that that's a really long relationship I've had with them and I, I'll never forget that because you know when you're out of college 
you're kind of lost you've got nothing to do and that was our sort of like oh that was your breakthrough it was, was you know moment. yeah it is it was it was really good so i love working with them and i'm hoping to do lots more with them in the future i suppose and obviously choose love i'm actually i've just been approached to do another project that's tied with choose love um for that i come out in september and last time I saw you, actually, we just bumped into each other and had a little chat and you were saying that you actually pulled out of a, a project with quite a big, very well-known brand um, because they wanted some works. Was it works um, solely by female artists, wasn't yeah. it, to go into their one of their stores, but they didn't want to show a nipple? Was that the top gallery? It was... It was um, the statue of David's little dinkle. Oh, okay. Um, it was in there. It was, it was a massive. Sh- it was what two? It was on like two, three weeks ago, right bang in the middle of Women's History Month. So it'd been planned for a really long time. Five curators were chosen to take over the whole store in Adidas Oxford Street, which is great. They sh- they were going to be hundred artists, I think, in total. Um, so I think each curator might have had like 20 artists or 15 artists or something. And, um, you know, the works that I'd put forward to my curator had been given two mu- no, maybe two months ago. Um, I was adamant that I've, I've got this piece called Mind the Gap. It's printed on a ready-made. It's a statue of David. It's an apron um, that's sold widely in Florence, in Rome. It's one of those Mm -hmm. gag type of things. And the only um, thing is I've printed my little trademark, little pop spots on it, and it says mind the gap on it. But the only thing that's highlighted really is David's bit. Um, But it works as a whole. I think that, and I think it was for five days before the opening that I was, I was told that, oh, do I have something else to show? Um, Adidas have got a nudity policy in store. Nudity. Imagine an apron. It's a printed statue. That you, I don't know. There's there's copies of David's statue. Have you seen the one in the V&A at yeah, all? Yeah. Um, so there's one in the the, um, the square. Oh, what's it called? Palace di Evicchio, I think, in Florence. Um, there's one standing in the middle of a square um, to the public. Kids are growing up with that image. Yeah, I mean, what if their shop window overlooked that? It's it's just, it's quite laughable, but they consider that as nudity. But I think this has affected me in, on so many levels and it's taken me weeks to process. I haven't actually even put it on my Instagram yet. I'm kind of, I want to get my words right because I'm still processing the fact that are you telling me out of a hundred women possibly that no women painted anything nude in that show? You know, women are known for painting their bit, you know, their lady gardens. Like that's what feminists do, you know, <laughs> traditionally. No. Um, so that, that was one thing. I was like, are you telling me there's no nudity in this show? Like, what, what's everyone doing? Like, <laughs> there's got to be some sort of a body or a nipple or a boob or something. And two, like, how, um, you know, we're talking about art washing a little bit. I'm starting to think, I don't know, there might be a word for it. Is it art washing in, in women's artwork? Like, do you just want women to be beige and not have a say i don't know it's really really complicated i can't get my head around it but i decided no i don't have any other work that i want to show so i pulled out which was really really sad actually sad but quite brave as well i think a lot of people might have um might have just thought they don't want to lose that opportunity so they're going to go with it and um i think that's brave to to stand by you have to stand by your work because if you don't stand by your work, no one's going to stand by your work. True. I'm just hoping like creative debuts who were in association with Adidas um, realise that if you are going to put on in the future, especially if you're going to put on 
of all female show or any show actually um male female whatever um you can't censor artwork i think adidas need to realize that once you start bringing art into your shop it's not a retail shop anymore it's kind of a gallery also and you know as artists and galleries we've got um lenience you can say rude words and show naked bits and things like that and I don't I think it's really dangerous to dabble or be somewhere in between you've got to make up your mind what you want to do and I think Adidas really need to I think they had a major backlash last year end of last year um they've done a nipple campaign um real nipples and and I think that's why they might be a bit scared but I think that was too brave you know you've got to go somewhere in the middle they went way too far with the nipple thing and I think their audiences just couldn't take it um the other thing I started kind of thinking was like are you telling me someone up there in Adidas doesn't know like the statue of David are we are we talking about this level of maybe these people don't know you know they might be really young hip they might I, I don't know it's just really complicated I think if you're a brand please don't meddle into art especially women's art where you're willing to censor them it's really not the way to go and you know what I'm not finished with this I really am not I think I keep wondering why this happened what was what was it trying to tell me what's it trying to show me is it guiding me for my next campaign or next thing that I'm gonna do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. because it's it's messed up it really is messed up and I'm going to be intrigued actually when I do put it online if anyone comes forward to say actually they did this to me also I'll be very intrigued to find out and you know what's really funny the show was only meant to be for one night imagine one night I'm proud thank you I am proud of doing what I did but I think maybe if I was 20 or starting out maybe I wouldn't have I would have bowed down that's the difference isn't it I think but I didn't experience. need a free pair of trainers that badly. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can buy my own. You've also done cu- some curating stuff yourself, haven't you? Like you create, curated mm. at the other art fair last year. And like yeah. you're, you're in that like sort of realm as well, I like doing it sometimes. It's a lot of work. Yeah, Jo, jo Poo actually, she was, she, you don't, you know, I think she's done a post because she was in the show last year with, um, in 2020, a brief survey in the other art fair um she's like you don't know it takes a lot for someone to put shows like this on and it really does um because I did the I don't think you came but when I put on Save Yourselves it was the last giant show that I did in Stour Space in the yeah, Stour no, Space in Roach yeah. Road um after what we did on the pub and that was like six I think that was 60 artists I did and that <laughs> There was a point I was in the middle of the space, rocking back and forth <laughs> on the floor, crying. And I remember, I think it was Edwin and someone else just come up to me, just hugging me on the floor. If oh. you're right, good guys. But I think with the curation, I don't like doing it. But do you know when you when you get a really good idea, it's a concept, and you know it's kind of going to work. And I think. That's why Save Yourselves worked. It was just an amazing thing of just bringing, you know, new street artists, old street artists, you know, my sisters in print project. It, it was phenomenal. Then I think with um, a brief survey was really great because I got to curate with my best mate Ego and um, bring all these international, national women together. That was a postponed show for 2020, actually, but. That's what it was called, 2020. But um, but I won't be doing another one anytime soon. What's in the pipeline next? Next? Who knows? I don't know. I've got a few little projects. I'm saying no a lot because I've I've um, I've got my email on a I and I keep you know you, sometimes you have really important people write to you and I've got the, you should email me actually see what my <laughs> fly is it's been on for two years um that i've changed priorities due due to a pandemic and i'll get back to you whenever and if i don't you find me that's my it's really sarcastic but um oh i do have a show actually i'm in a show in fitzwilliam museum 
in October, which is nice. It's about currency and money and conflict and power. And I'm going up there next week just to have a little de- a tour they're going to give me of the museum. I don't know. I think I would just want to do studio stuff. Nice. And rant less. No, keep ranting. And I think as well, like just talking about the curation as well, I think um, the amount of artists and the quality of artists that you do work with and that want to work with you yeah. is kind of testament to, to you and what you do, I think. So, yeah. It is, it's about quality, isn't it? I think so. I've been really fortunate, honestly. I've worked with... Who's your favourites? The favourites you've worked with? There are some that I've had really special relationships with. You know, obviously I've worked with Lucas Price for a really long time, who I'm actually, he's one of the only persons, people that I'm still willing to print for, actually, just because he was the first person that I ever printed for in in any capacity. Obviously Sweet Tooth, I've worked with him for a really long time and I've worked with Mobster for a really long time. Me and Edwin still hang out and do stupid things sometimes. And then a couple of years ago, I was really fortunate. Um, Uncle contacted me, well, Uncle's people. Then I had Uncle in the studio printing with me because he just wanted to print and we did his T-shirts here. And that was just really surreal. (laughs) It's just so weird. But I, I really enjoyed working with him. Lucky. Yeah. In a weird way. Being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, we spoke a few times on this podcast about luck and how that, yeah, kind of is being in the right place at the right time, but how you kind of put yourself in that place as well, how you kind of Mm. make your own luck to a certain extent, I think. Yeah, you do. I mean, you've got, you can be presented with something, you could get lucky, but you have to have the backup, right? Just to go, you know, when these people approached me when I had my shop in Brick Lane and they wanted prints done by me, and things like that. Um, it was, I mean, I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but I will, but I was good. And that's why they wanted me. It wasn't because like I was doing a lot of favours or anything. They just found me. And I think actually Kid Acne was one of the first people that come into my shop and went, who printed these? I was like, me. He was like, oh. And that's when I got the emails like, oh, could you do something that you do similar to for yourself for me? Um, right. So, you know, so I think you've got to back it up back up whatever you're doing you've got to be good at what you're doing I suppose so you could have luck if I was shit and I met all these like great artists and produced shit where would I be I don't know some people seem to get away with it but I don't think that it's a good recipe no I don't think that's a good recipe for yeah (laughs) who's getting away with it well no I I just don't think that I just don't think that's a recipe for longevity I think it's just about are people thinking about longevity right now I don't think so Chrissy said on the first episode of this uh, podcast actually that short-termism is the is the plague of our age I think and that's kind of stuck with me and um I think, but when we live in this kind of environment when you don't know when you're going to get kicked out of your studio, you don't know if your local pub's going to get bulldozed, mm-hmm. you, it's, hard to, it's hard to be long-termist a lot of the time these days around here because the change is happening around you so rapidly and people are coming and going so quickly that it's hard to, to stick to any kind of long-term plan when everything around you is moving so fast. I think that that applies to sort of... Um what you want out of life or your living conditions and stuff like that. But I think with creativity, I think you can be a bit more slower with it and have an end game and the long game. But yeah, obviously your environment does affect it. But you know what? I think this this urgency hasn't been a bad thing because it makes you a lot more productive mm-hmm. and it makes you time aware. So you, you're not squandering your time and you're being actually more time conju- conducive and things like that. So, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. But I just think it's more with with the youth. I actually just yesterday replied to a, a student's email who's doing a master's and they were asking me about um, advice on how they can find their positioning in what they're doing, you know, things like that. And so I try and make time for these things because obviously I was a student once. It's always nice someone helping you. And I always say just like, don't think about where you're going to position yourself, where you're going. It's just like, make good work. 
Mm. Honestly, do you know, I really believe it. I think if you just make really good work and you put it out there and you're quite proactive, um, people find you, you know. I didn't go, maybe I got lucky again, but I didn't go looking for things. I was just, you just do good things and, you know, like I have, I've got a couple of museums right to me. Um, I didn't go looking for that. Then you wonder how the hell do they find you? You know, just make good things and people will find you. Word of mouth as well. I think, you know, even to this day, there is word of mouth and social media. People share things if you make good things. Yeah, we've probably never had more of a captive audience than than we have today. Yeah, it's just about utilising that in the right ways, isn't it? I think that's a lovely place to end, Ida, because I'm concerned that... I don't want to take up any more of your evening. Um, I've had such a great time chatting to you. Um, I think you're an absolutely fascinating person. I think you're a, a brilliant artist. And uh, yeah, long may what you do continue. And thanks for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. So that was Ida Wild. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And as always, you can leave your feedback in the comments of the Instagram post for this episode. We'll be releasing new episodes fortnightly now, so subscribe to get them when they drop. And a massive thank you to everyone that has listened and supported us so far. This has been the Alternative London podcast with me, Gary Means, edited by Stu Bannigan.